All right. Good morning, everybody. Morning, morning. Great to see you all, especially there's a number of faces I don't recognize. So if you don't recognize me either, um, my name is Steve, and uh, it's my privilege to lead the church here and a privilege to speak this morning to you in our series about which a PowerPoint is about to appear. Uh, We're doing a series that's all about being rooted in Christ. Uh, We've been doing it since uh, the beginning of the autumn, and, and we're still in that. Different ways in which we're rooted in Christ. And this morning, we're particularly going to be looking at the theme of... Uh, community. Our, uh, as I have said several times over the last six weeks or so, we've got this phrase on the right-hand side here to bring some focus to what we know God is calling us to do as a church, which is to grow communities that bring heaven to earth. And uh, we've explained a little bit more. If you want to know what we mean by that phrase, if you go online to the church website, you can hear me again talking about that from just a month or so ago. The first of two talks that I did about vision, one was really about that. And then John and Nom, for whom we've been praying this morning, who are in Paris, were with us that week. And they finished off sharing a message about growing communities that bring heaven to earth. And then I also spoke about this, three very practical things that we can do that will contribute to growing those kinds of communities. We can invest in relationships. That's both our relationship with God and relationships with other people. We can be bold, lion-like, and as a mother hen gathers her chicks together, we can invite people in. We can invite people to come close. Now, Um, the stewards who probably all just sat down are going to need to help us again in a moment because there's something that goes along... I hear the sound of Lego. There's There's something that goes along with this investing and being bold and inviting, which is... Um, that we're doing something together which involves these different colored Lego bricks. And some Lego bricks are being handed out. And there's an opportunity, if you have invested afresh in your relationship with God or with other people, take a blue Lego brick as they come by. If you've been bold, take a red one. And if you've invited anyone to something, this will be over the last fortnight since we last did this. Grab a a yellow Lego brick. They're coming around now. So enjoy free Lego, but you don't get to hang on to it because out in the foyer, there is this board of Lego, which we began to add to a fortnight ago so that we can make a testimony together of the things that God is enabling us to do. And as we, over the weeks and the months to come, keep adding in these different things, we'll see what it is that God's enabled us to do and see that little bit by little bit by little bit by little bit, something amazing is being built. Uh, It was a bit of a challenge two weeks ago, stopping the children just having a free-for-all with the Lego. Um, But anyway, yeah, you can't take 15, Simon. There we go. That's going to keep coming round. So that's what that is all about. And whilst that's going round, and uh, there's a little bit of a hiatus, I also just want to wave a booklet at you. A little booklet, which is entitled Exploring Membership. In the last... Uh, term, we have changed the way that we make church membership uh, accessible to everyone. It used to be that if you felt part of the church here and thought it was time to formalize that by becoming a church member, 
you needed to come to our house for three evenings and talk a load of stuff through. And lots of people found that a challenge to get to. So we've tried to make things more accessible by taking the content of what we talk about in our house on those three evenings and making it no more a secret, but sticking it in, in this booklet, which is entitled Exploring Membership. And it explains a bundle of things in there about who we are as a church, what our core values are, what some of our key practices are. And then at the end, there's a little bit which clarifies what your next steps are. Having had a look at this, really, you need to talk to someone. You need to talk particularly to someone in the church leadership team and to one of the elders. Anyway, it explains all of that so that you can engage with just a new level of belonging, really, in the church through doing that. And we're going to then, as people go through this process... And have a number of people who want to state to the church as a whole that that's what they feel is right for them to be church members. And in the spring, we're going to have a membership Sunday. And then term by term going forward, we're going to have membership Sundays where people can stand up and say, well, that count me in. That's where I'm at. I've done this. I'm, I'm with you, heart and soul. And, and this, is, this is me too. Um, so that's just to draw your attention to that. One of the key values that's in here is community. You've probably picked up by now, even if this is your first time of ever connecting with our church, that we're into community. There's a clue in the name, being Oxford Community Church. We call the key things that happen outside of Sunday morning communities. And when we started a school a couple of years ago, we called it Tyndale Community School, um, which actually led to some um, formal objection. The local um, humanist society got in touch with the Department for Education and asked if they could please force us to change our name because they thought that the word community sounded inclusive and uh, as Christians we obviously wouldn't be. Um, the Department for Education chose not to do anything with that complaint and actually we are building community through the school in a way that's wonderfully inclusive. So just as well we use that. But we believe in community. So that's our theme for this morning, community. I'm going to talk in several different ways about what we understand community to mean, what it is for us as Christians, what it might look like practically, and then we're going to finish with some reflection about ourselves and God's goodness towards us. There's one question that is going to run all the way through that. This is the question that I felt God Uh, bring to my mind, to bring to your minds this morning. And it's this question, is there any love to spare? That's the question. And we're going to come back to that in a number of ways as the morning goes on. Is there any love to spare? But before that, let's just have a little think about what we mean by community. Because community can mean all sorts of things. We have community centers and community cafes, community football teams. And so for many people, community might simply mean something like that. It might be expressed through a cafe or a team or a group. You might feel that you live in a great community because there's low crime levels in your community, so it's a great community to be part of. It might be that there's a great school local to where you are that makes you feel, ah, oh, there's a sense of community here. Uh, it might be that everyone in your the place where you live, everyone's pretty much the same and does pretty much the same stuff. And you go, ah, 
great sense of community, strong local culture. It might be quite the opposite, and you think, well, I live in a community that's immensely diverse, lots of different nationalities, and everyone loves each other, or at least we don't have pitch battles in the streets. And so that's a wonderful sense of community. So where in the midst of all of that do we as Christians understand community? Because it means a huge number of different things to different people. Well, biblically, there's another word which points us in the right direction. It's a word that many of us are familiar with and love, and it's this word, covenant. And I've put a few different pictures there because the Bible speaks of covenant in a number of ways. It speaks right near the beginning of the Bible about the covenant, the kind of relationship that's formed in marriage, where it says in Genesis 2, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one. If, it's like you, you can't make them uh, entirely separate ever again because two have become one. There's a covenant of marriage. It speaks of people who were from different families becoming one family. It's not just about a special kind of friendship. It's more than that. Friendship becoming family. That's one kind of covenantal relationship. The next bit is supposed to be a picture of Moses with the tablets of stone and the Ten Commandments. And there's a covenant that God formed with the people of Israel, which is described in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where it says, The Lord your God, speaking to the people of Israel, The Lord your God has chosen you. It's chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord didn't set his affection on you. The Lord didn't choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you. And he kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. There's a solid relationship that God offers to his people. And then the picture on the right-hand side is obviously of someone getting baptized. And for us, there is a new covenant, not only the covenant with Moses, but a new covenant in which we can be united with Christ through baptism. That's what we sang about. If you were confused about that song where we go beneath the waters and are raised to life, it's a song that comes from Paul's letter in, to the Romans, chapter 6, where he talks about us having been baptized into Christ and so having died with him. Not only symbolically, but there's a spiritual reality to that. And then lifted out of the water, like being raised from the grave. And Paul wrote elsewhere in 1 Corinthians, the letter, first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 12, just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, 
slave or free. We were all given one spirit to drink. And so coming to Christ is the same kind of committed relationship, not just our commitment to God, but his commitment to us, that we're in him. If two become one in marriage, then so too we are united with Christ. We become one with Christ in a covenantal relationship. It's secure. It's solid. It's more than just a passing cup of coffee in the cafe. It's more than just playing in a community football team together. It's more than uh, enjoying walking along the street and seeing the diversity of the neighborhood. It's about friends becoming family. And amazingly, God does not only call us his friends, he invites us in further. He says, you're my children. We're brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit invites us within his relationships, not just to stand on and look and say how amazing he is, but right in. To put it another way, church, that is what we are. Church is family. You know, when we talk about being brothers and sisters, that's how it is. I don't know how many of you have brothers and sisters and what your relationships are like with them, but you definitely can't just get rid of them. It's true for us as brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how Jesus put it. On one occasion, while Jesus was talking to a crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside waiting to speak to him. And someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They're waiting to speak to you. And Jesus replied, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, here, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus says it's the people who follow him who form family. We are his family and we're family together. That's the kind of community that we're talking about. It goes deeper and it is stronger than the kind of community that normally gets described in the society in which we live. Now then, that's covenant. Many of us have found this picture helpful. Well, not this specific photograph, but the thing that it represents. It's a picture, clearly, of coals on a fire. Because what happens when we come together as Christians, who all have the love of God in us, is there's enough put into us that there's a bit that overflows to others. And so when we come together... It's like coals on a fire. If you take an individual coal from a burning fire and put it to one side, its heat will eventually ebb away and it will go stone cold. Whereas together, each coal gives some of its heat to the others and together they may remain red hot and burning. That's what it's like for us coming together as brothers and sisters. Uh, I'm going to stick a triangle there. This is something else that others of us have found helpful in just in understanding what it is that we're part of. There is an upward dynamic to this relationship. This fire amongst us isn't just us being enthusiastic. Uh, The fire got started sometime. The fire actually in church history 
got started on a day called Pentecost. There was no fire of the Holy Spirit, and then the Spirit came, and then everything was changed. And that occasion is described as people having tongues of fire on every single head, as God came by his Spirit and set every single person alight. There would be no fire amongst us except for God's presence. It's his fire. There's an inward dynamic to this, that we're there for each other. There's something that spills over from one to another. I want to read something to you from a book that I found useful. This is written by a guy who is uh, is an Anglican vicar and uh, in the middle of his life and single, but says this in writing, I am part of a family. And then he says, let me illustrate. He writes, I arrive at church meetings and hug my honorary Aunt Ruth, who's just turned 70. She's single too, and we've talked about how we both miss physical affection. And so now, in this way, we provide something for each other. On a Tuesday evening, I pop over to a family who live just around the corner, overexcite Charlie and Toby, the latter being one of my 12 godchildren, just before bedtime, and then have supper with their patient parents, Jim and Claire. I love sitting down and talking life and ministry with them. Midweek, I try to meet up with a group of church friends in a local cafe and catch up on the week. We're often a mix of single people and some married couples, and it works best when there's a cross-section of people there. There are more life experiences and more pizza to share. On a Thursday night, Jack often pops in on his way back from work, and we put the world to rights from a single man's perspective. I've known him since he was a young Christian and student, and have had the pleasure of helping and watching him grow into a mature Christian who pours himself out, serving Jesus. On Sundays, in the time between our church meeting and small group, I go for tea with a couple and their two daughters. I've known Simon and Lucy for over 10 years and was the best man at their wedding, and we depend on each other for advice. We know about each other's families, finances, and faith. I'm godfather to Katie and have read stories to her, and I've been chosen as a potential legal guardian to both her and her sister Hannah. Another couple invites me on holidays and open up their home all the time. David and Jolzner have cooked about 400 meals for me at the last count, I cried through the end of Mary Poppins with their daughter, Malati. Paul and Joe are often there, and they have me over for meals too. The three of us all share their son, Jacob, as a godchild. I hadn't got round to making any plans for my last birthday, so the couple I lead a small group with, Paul and Helen, they organized a party, and 50 church family members came with just two days' notice. John and Avril are my parents' age, but have become some of my closest friends, although John's skill and speed at Scrabble has tested that friendship at times. We enjoy the same TV series like West Wing and MASH, and some of the same music like James Taylor. I could go on and talk about Tim and Ali, Jay and Rosie, Phil. I have people I can ring up and who ring me up at 10 p.m., so there's someone to talk to when I get in after a long day. They know that I often find this time hard and have offered to help. Last time I was sick, I needed a switchboard operator to help me cope with all the offers of help. My freezer is still stocked up with the soups and casseroles that people brought. God has very kindly put me in a family of people of all ages, backgrounds, 
and circumstances, and we are slowly learning to be family to one another, just as Jesus said we should be. Jesus has made us to be. Jesus was as ever telling the truth when he said, no one who has left father, sorry, who has left home or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. And crucially, this new family benefits us all. There is give and take from all of us all the time. It strengthens single people, but it also strengthens marriages. It allows children to grow up in an environment where there are multiple adults parenting them. It's not perfect. There are constant ups and downs. All human relationships get messy at times, but they are a mess worth making. For when it works, it's the most wonderful of experiences for all of us. At times, I pinch myself. (sighs) Actually, this guy is not only single, but he describes himself as, this is his own language, exclusively same-sex attracted. It's what he's chosen to say of himself rather than that he's gay. And he makes a further comment. The plausibility of the life that I've chosen, which is to be celibate as an Anglican vicar, the plausibility of the life that I've chosen is closely tied to this experience. When church feels like family, I can cope with not ever having my own partner and children. When church family hasn't worked is when I've struggled the most. The same-sex attracted Christians I've met who are suffering most are those in churches who haven't grasped this at all and that don't even notice these individuals. So do you want to help make biblical teaching seem reasonable? Then start start acting out the Christian reality that family equals church, whatever life circumstance God has put you in. Recognize that Family equals mum and dad and 2.4 children is a misstep. Actually, I mean, he's writing from one particular perspective, but the importance of church as family is important to lots of people. Uh, If you have grown up in an Asian family where there's an expectation that you'll work in some cousin's family business to help make it work um, without an income, but the family will feed you as you go, knowing that at some point in the future when you've got a great idea for a business, the family will pay for it. Knowing that when you first get married, you might live with your parents still, but that when the family's able, they'll just buy you a house. When you've grown up in the kind of family where it doesn't really matter whose individual bank account the wage goes into. If your brother's wage goes into your account, it doesn't really matter because you're all in it together. If you've grown up in that kind of community, and, and say it happens to be a Muslim family, and we say to people, come to church, we're a family, I wonder how compelling that is. 
in. What we do for one another matters. It actually affects the plausibility of the gospel. It makes a difference to whether people can believe it could be that way. We sang, I believe, in the saints' communion. This is it. This is what we're talking about. My question this morning is, is there any love to spare? Is there any love to spare? And as well as the upward and the inward, there's an outward bit, because when a fire is burning, it doesn't just keep its own flame alight. There's a heat that goes out, and there's light that goes out. And it makes it clear to other people that they're welcome to join in. That's why the communities that we have in this church are a bit different to many churches, small groups. We want them to, they want the light to shine out from them to people beyond just the group that's formed and for others to know that they could join in and be part. We want to live as Christians in such a way that people who are not yet believers, people who are seeking Jesus, can come in amongst us and experience Christ in us, the hope of glory. Is there any love to spare? Is there any love to spare? Because we have this thing of growing communities that bring heaven to earth, but there'll be no growing communities unless there's some love to spare. Growing means having some spare room. Uh, We're soon going to be coming up to Christmas. And part of the Christmas story is that Mary and Joseph arrive, Jesus in the womb, at the inn, and there's no room. Uh, Actually, as many of you will know, there were no inns in the ancient world. This could never have happened. Because there were no inns, premier inns or holiday inns or any kind of inns. There was no hotel culture. There was a much more domestic hospitality culture. People would come and knock on your door and say, have you got a spare room? And the word that's translated as inn in the narrative in Matthew's gospel is the same word that's used to describe the upper room that Jesus and the disciples went to for their final Passover. It's sometimes translated in older versions of the Bible as a lodging place. We might more naturally say spare room. Wonder, do we have any spare room in our lives? Of course, in Oxford, there are no spare rooms. Uh, We know what that's like. Space is so expensive here. Every now and again, I get a request from someone saying, this really wonderful person is coming to visit Oxford. Who in the church can put them up? And there's about three people in the church with a spare room. That's the truth of it. It's very, very unusual. Um, And it's getting worse due to changes in housing benefit. Um, Depending on your politics, you'll either call that the spare room subsidy or the bedroom tax. What I'm more interested in this morning is that I wonder whether we in Oxford have got used to living cramped lives. Whether there's something about the physical space that we're in and the constraints that it puts on us that means we've got used to living 
cramped lives without spare room. You know, God wants us to live with spare room. Uh, The current government doesn't want people to have spare rooms paid for by housing benefit. Uh, God wants us to live with some spare room. And of course, I'm not just talking about physical space here, although may God bless us all with that kind of spare room. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about time to give to people. The question, this question, is there any love to spare? Maybe it's better to put it this way. Do we have any spare room in our lives to share with people? That's the question. Um, I think I mentioned this when I was here on Friday night with leaders, and I think I did. But I have a friend who's a pastor who has uh, had a, I think I said on Friday night, he's a psychiatrist. He's actually a psychologist join his church. I might have even said this preaching a couple of Sunday mornings ago, um, but it's very much in my mind at the moment, as you can tell. I had a psychologist join his church, and this psychologist offered to give him the uh, sort of psychological health check once over, and he received that. And this psychologist said to him, you have got a problem. Um, the problem is you're really, really friendly. Um, so much so that anyone who talks to you finishes their conversation thinking that they're about to be your new best friend. Only they're not. Because there's no room in your life for them. And so there is actually a trail behind you of people who are disappointed and feel you've led them up the garden path. The moral of that little story is not to become less friendly. The question is, is there any spare room in our lives so that when there are potential new friends, they can fit in? So here we go. A few more practical things. Ways to gain a spare room. Uh, These are my two youngest daughters. I have three daughters. The first one fled at the sight of a camera. The other two wanted to be included. This is our front room. That is a sofa bed. And so here's the first thing. If there's a need to gain some spare room that other people could be part of, one thing that you can do is convert some existing space. There may be some space in your life that you've been having just to yourself and using for one purpose, but that could very simply include other people. Uh, many of the things that were described by that vicar in what he wrote were just everyday things. I can't remember the name of the couple um, whose kids he wound up before they went to bed, but that family needed to have dinner, and cooking for three adults and two children is not much more than cooking for two adults and two children. And whilst he wound their children up, I bet he did a bit of the washing up. I bet he chased them to bed. And was, it was actually easier, it would actually be easier for everyone to share that bit of space than to live it separately. So there are lots of small ways in which things we're used to doing by ourselves can include other people and space that we thought had to take one, have one purpose suddenly has another purpose. We can convert some of the existing space in our lives to something that could accommodate other people. The most obvious thing for us as a church is, 
is Sunday lunch. Great that Keith and Eileen are cooking Sunday lunch and inviting other people in next week, but we can all do that. We can all, if you, if you roast a chicken for lunch, buy a turkey, or at least a bigger chicken, and just have more people come and eat it, whatever it may be, it's easy just to do everyday things and include more people. And in that way, we can build community. Of course, what I'm saying is a bit of a challenge to the introverted amongst us who would rather say, please, can I keep my space to myself? I like my space. I don't want anyone in my space. I don't want a sofa bed. I'd like a cozy armchair and a book. And I don't, wa- I don't want anyone else there. <laughs> it's not accidental that it's like that. There's a reason why it's like that. Seriously, this is a challenge for introverts. Because we're called to love people. And I've got a funny feeling that when we stand before Jesus and say, well, but Lord, you made me. I didn't love people that much because you made me an introvert. I don't know. I just think that conversation is not going to go well. So, so uh, it's not about having a personality transplant, but just small things to open up your life to other people could make a massive difference to others, a massive difference to other people who actually would like to be with you. That's one thing we can do to gain a spare room. Here's another way to gain a spare room is we can clear out some clutter. Because it may well be that you've got some time in your life that's just, just, you filled it with needless things. But it's there, it's there, and there are habits that have been formed. Now, I don't know what this might be. Maybe you're embroiled in some really complicated DIY project that honestly doesn't need doing. But when you think about other people, you're clear in your own mind, well, I can't see those people because I've not yet finished off the architrave or, you know, whatever. And it's just, and it's just, it's needless. Honestly, honestly, it's needless. Uh, It might be that you've got some hobby that just fills your hours, that you're spending forever making the train set bigger. You just don't need to. Or maybe... Going back to the earlier point, someone else could come and build the train set with you. There's bound to be someone that would like to do that. (laughs) If the earlier thing about opening space up is a challenge to introverts, I think this might be a challenge to extroverts. Because extroverts like to fill life up. A little bit afraid of silence. A little bit afraid of being by themselves. Not enjoying it anyway. And so part of the clutter of an extrovert's life can be lots of time spent with people one after another, after another, after another, after another, none of which is going anywhere. None of which is very deep friendship. Say, oh, but it's people and people matter. Well, yeah, but you're only loving them enough to, to have a smile and a quick conversation, not enough to really invite them into your life. Maybe you need to clear out some of the clutter of a wide network that gets in the way of ever being family because a network of people that it's not the same as family and this community things like family so maybe there's a challenge there to extroverts and then of course for some people they may actually be just like create a whole new structure 
like building an extension. You've, that you recognize you've got the resources, you could do this. The way you're living life at the moment is not going to include people, but actually you could do something substantial and new that would include more people in your life. That might be something like joining a club or maybe starting a club. Uh, like the Snelsons have, oh, well, John has started a board games group, um, which Sally enjoys joining in with as well, I'm sure. But others have done too, and coming in, uh, in their lives, in their home, week in, week out, trying to win. Uh, but playing together and forming meaningful community. Um, or Grace and others who started a craft group and just started a, a new thing, created a new space into which people can come. So there's all of those things that we can do. We might, be, we might have some existing things that we're doing we could involve people in, like converting some space to create the spare room. We might need to clear out some clutter. We might need to do a, make a big decision and start something. But this much is clear. If there's no spare room in our lives then our community is never going to grow. Now, there's this statistic. I'm not sure if it's true, but it sounds good. Like most statistics. No, no. Like many statistics. It has a ring of truth to it. Um, you know, you can buy whole books on how to improve the welcome that your church gives on a Sunday morning. I know this because I have read some. And one of the facts and figures is this, that if someone comes to visit a church on a Sunday, and a week later, you get back to them and say, oh, it's nice having you with, with us. Thank, you know, anything we can do for you. The likelihood of that person ever coming back is about one in four. About a quarter of people will come back. There you go. Uh, if you get in touch within 48 hours and say, oh, it's lovely having you with us. Is there anything we can do for you? About half of those people will come back. If you get in touch within 24 hours, say, ah, oh, it's lovely having you with us. What can we do for you? Three quarters of those people will come back. Now, why is that? Is it because Christians are a sucker for a good sales pitch? No. It's not to do with that. It's to do with how that communicates openness in our lives. You see, if, it if we can get back to people straight away, what it communicates is a reality that, that we have space. We have space in our hearts. We, we want to make new friends. We want to find new brothers and sisters. If it takes us a while, what it communicates is that there are other things that are filling our vision, other things that are more important to us. If there's not actual space in our hearts, in our diaries, in our lives... Then, then there's no way that other people are going to join in. What is there for them to join, after all, other than to turn up to a meeting? The question is, is there any love to spare? This thing of investing and being bold and inviting, what I'm really talking about this morning is just a part of that. I'm talking about investing in relationships so that there's something to invite people into. This is about the investing in relationships and inviting people in. I'd like to show you a poem uh, by this guy. This is a guy called Steve Turner. This poem comes in two parts. I'm going to put up the first bit and then the second bit. 
The Lord God says, share your bread with the hungry, bring the homeless poor into your house, cover the naked. Second part of the poem. Dear Lord God, we've got new carpets, so this will not be possible. And I wonder how many of us honestly feel more like that. We can talk about God's love for people, but we don't actually want them knocking on our front doors. In which case, the issue is not the state of our carpets, but the state of our hearts. Because if you love people, you don't mind about the carpets. Now, I'm nearly done, and we're going to listen to some, uh, a song together in just a moment. Because I, I don't want this to... This, I was praying that God would help things not to get heavy at this point. Because the way to grow with love for people isn't to try to work up a kind of studious disregard for your carpets and sort of discipline yourself in that way. That's not how the New Testament describes love working. Instead, it has this prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, which is what we are already as Christians, may have power, together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God and Jesus declared that the love he has will be in us in fact he himself will be in us in John chapter 17 Jesus says I have declared to them praying to his father I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The way this works is not working ourselves up to love people more. It works by receiving the love of God and then we're changed. My question all the way through this morning has been this, is there any love to spare? And the answer is yes. 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 Now, there might not yet be enough love to spare in me, but in God, revealed himself to Moses as the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, abounding in love. There is love to spare. Heaven is just full of reservoirs of love that God will pour out to us that will give us more than enough. But we can't make that happen with our own diligence or hard work. It's something to receive. And so we're going to just listen to a song. The words, I think, are going to come up as we go to help you um, engage with it. The song by a band, um, Alex will be very happy, United Pursuit, um, about walls that we build for our own comfort those walls coming down because God's love is better. There's a better way of life living within the love of God. So uh, we're going to listen to this and then I think we may well sing together. At the beginning of, well, partway through the meeting, John um, had a really, really helpful picture of thirst and that thirst being satisfied. So what we have with this song is really just a few minutes to drink, drink deep. <laughs>